Welcome to Evolve to Succeed, the podcast that brings together entrepreneurs, founders, business leaders, and experts to talk about their journeys and explore the link between personal and business success. I'm your host, Juan Munson, founder of Evolve, a coaching, training, and development company focused on enabling business and personal success and creating a community of like-minded individuals. Whether that be through our peer groups, one-to-one coaching, our training and development programs for you and your teams, or through our content and events, our mission is to get the best out of each individual and inspire them to be better both in life and in business. If you want to learn more about Evolve, including our beautiful co-working space in Ashley Cross in Paul, then please go to evolvemembers.com where you'll find great content, insights, details of all of our services and also information on our forthcoming events. For now though, let's get on with the show. Welcome to this week's episode. My guest is Mike Stevens, advisor, mentor, consultant for startups and challenger brands. Mike was part of the founding team at Innocent Drinks and was with the brand for about eight years. He then went on to found the natural confectionery company Peppersmith, which he sold in 2019 as part of his move from London to the South Coast. Mike is both passionate and very knowledgeable about direct consumer brands and has written a book being released next month in which he interviews the founders of several successful D2C brands and charts their stories and methods for success in what is an exciting but complex arena of business. There is so much to cover in this podcast around subjects like e-commerce, the benefits and challenges of going the retail route, as well as the future of D2C and how it's going to influence the way we interact with brands in the future. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, Mike, to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on the podcast. I'm really interested to have a sort of you know, an in-depth conversation with you about direct consumer brands and developing those businesses. But before we do that, I need to talk to you about your own entrepreneurial journey with Peppersmith. But for me, from looking at the background to you, it really did all start for you, it would appear, in the kind of consumable product world when you took a senior team role as one of the first senior team members at Innocent Drinks. So those must have been crazy times. So tell us a little bit about the your experience at Innocent and what it taught you, really. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was just really lucky to get... Um, introduced to the innocent guys back in the day when they were uh, you know, a scrappy little startup working out a uh, an industrial unit in southwest London. It was uh, you know it was unglamorous as it sounds. Um, my yeah. interview was round a um, like a, pl- a plastic you know garden table in in, in a meeting <laughs> room um, and this like slightly smelly weird little office. Uh, but that was great. I mean that was um, what startups. I guess you know were about. I mean, that innocent were a startup before startups were were yeah, a thing. They were uh, that one of those just starlet kind of brands that came from nowhere. And one of the and were one of the first to do that, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, they did start at the same you know same year as Google. So yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's so uh, you put things in perspective. So they weren't the first um, company to come out of nowhere uh, and be successful. But um, I joined Innocent when I was. 25 or 26 okay. so I'd had like one or two jobs at university um, but even in that time I was looking at so you know I was really yeah quite entrepreneurial minded I was like oh I should really do my own thing um, okay. and I got introduced to Innocent uh, I was lucky so there was the, the main there's there's three founders at Innocent John Adam and Richard who um, you know look them up if you don't already know them but, you know really um, <clears throat> really interesting and um, fantastic people to know but really alongside them who was um, he's outside the marketing world he's quite unknown he's a guy called Dan Germain who is now he's one of the the um, chief uh, marketing people at Google. Um, he works at Apple, but spent you know nearly as long as well longer than me at Innocent. He was there for nearly twenty years, and he was like the, sort of their creative brand director. He okay. was a, you know, the famous Innocent voice. Yes. You know the kooky packaging was Richard, who was one of the founders, but also Dan. And I went to school with Dan, um, and so I I knew him and I knew what this um, this weird little company called Innocent were doing. Um, Dan's like this um, super clever chap who comes from Cambridge, and he was working when when he started helping the innocent guys he was their van driver okay uh, so uh, <laughs> yeah, then, start somewhere, you've got you've got to start somewhere so and he said to me this is 
back at the end of 2000. It's like, my, you know, Innocent, we've been going for a year or so. It's going quite well. Uh, we need someone to run our supply chain. It's like, you know a bit about supply chain. I did supply chain stuff at university. It's like, do you want to come and have a look? And so I was like, brilliant. And it just worked so well with, for me because I wanted to sort of look at the um, startup world, entrepreneurial world. Yeah. And I saw this business who were clearly already doing some great stuff. It's like, I should go there. If I can get a job there, I can learn how it's done. Yeah. I'll be there for two or three years and uh, I'll see how it's done. And then I'll go and do my own go thing. Take all those, Take all those learnings. And in the end, I was there for eight years because little did I know that I had actually joined, you know, one of the most iconic sort of startup brands yeah. in the last 20, 30, 40 years. And I learned so much there, you know, got to work with so many fantastic people not only the founders but other people in the business and especially in the early days it was full of very I guess young talented entrepreneurial minds yeah so it was just just a great place to be and we had we had loads and loads of fun yeah it was just brilliant so I was there for eight years but it was always a matter of when not if that I broke away and did my own thing. So do you think you're always destined to run your own business? Was that always an ambition from a young age? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not. It's funny, when we're going to talk about the book that I, I've written in, in a minute, but and most of the founders, they've always got this story. It's like, I was the guy who sold the, had the lemonade stand and was selling the things in, <laughs> in the car park, or I had my own lawnmower business. I don't, I don't know how much of that is manufactured. I always worked when I was a kid. Um, you know, had paper yeah. rounds and did stuff. But in terms of that entrepreneurial thing where you create your own yeah. thing, that wasn't me until I was 18. And I got introduced by a friend. Who you So it was, um, what are they called? Not, not, not the pyramid schemes, the network schemes. <laughs> yeah, pyramid uh, selling. Yeah, the, 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 yeah the, um, the, the Amway company, the sold okay. house, I think. And I was introduced then when I was about 18. And I I did the bits and I sold the pots and pans and the, the oven cleaners and stuff. Um, and, you know, made a bit of money. But I didn't, really didn't like the system where you had to introduce more people and blah, 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 and did all that stuff. But what they did, they introduced me to, I guess, lots of literature yeah. about entrepreneurialism and this way of thinking. And there was this book, okay. The Magic of Thinking Big. And really, and reading that at the age of 18, it just... All of a sudden, everything made sense. It's like, you know, you didn't have to be in a box. You could have your own ambitions. You could have your own control. And I'm quite a creative person as well. It's like, oh, you know, I can do something here. Wow. And then I went off to university. And the interesting idea at university is that I started doing engineering. I did okay. maths and physics and stuff at school. It's like, oh, I'm going to do engineering. And the reason I wanted to do engineering is because like, I can make things. I can change things. Yeah. You know, I can make yeah. a real difference. That- and when I got there, it was actually, it was two things. It was really, really hard. <laughs> yeah, engineering and engineering degree is like a full time job um, so that was different especially when I was looking at all the rest of my peers and having the, fun and yeah having fun and, yeah like, Ooh, you know have I chosen correctly here I've chosen wisely but the second thing I realised as well the life of an engineer or a traditional engineer is you get put into a big business and you're a small cog in a big machine and you don't get paid that well for it so after six months I stopped engineering jacked in the university for six months and then I, I came back the next year to start okay. doing a business degree. Okay. So it's like, like, this makes more sense this to me. me. <laughs> this is This is me. So I started doing business. So I, know, so I, had, I did the business degree coming out. So you, I was already looking at um, sort of, you know, can I do things? There was like new web businesses. Can I make a thing? But, you know, I knew nothing. I was really inexperienced. I was green. I didn't yeah. know I had to do anything. I had some ideas. Most of them were rubbish. <laughs> but um, um, so it was when I, you know, I was introduced to Innocence. Like, oh, this is just a place to learn. And it was a great place to learn. So I was there for eight years. I headed up their supply chain for the first six years. And then I was asked to go up to Scandinavia to be the country manager to launch the brand okay. uh, up in Scandinavia. And that, that suited me because what happens with these businesses, as they get bigger and bigger and bigger, they want more specialists in the different yeah. roles the different functions I'm just I'm rubbish at being a specialist I'm a pure generalist I like yeah. doing I like doing a bit of everything which is why I love like sort of that young startup entrepreneurial environment when everyone gets yeah. uh, gets involved with everything and has to you don't have a choice you know even if you're the supply guy, supply chain guy you're going to get involved with marketing and finance and get in the van and do some yeah, selling you just you just you have to do it all but, that, but that's true though you've got to know where you fit in life don't you me I, I love that energy of a new business and those early years but then when it grows and grows and grows, you know, and, and you become more of the leader and you're less hands-on, that always feels less of me. 
Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? It's a hard balance because you're almost punished by your success. Yeah, but that's where you've got to need to go. You've got to delegate. You've got to let go. Yeah. You've got to bring in those that are more uh, skilled than you because that's how you grow and that's how you succeed. And that's what I suppose I've done on my journey. But I, I've always found that difficult to do. It's hard, but, you know, all things, you know, worth doing. Worth yeah. doing well and the hard and all that stuff. But, you know, I was lucky. So I had two years in Scandinavia being a general manager, which is, you know, which I, I still am now. Okay. So where as a general manager, it's, you know, a bit like you know, being a founder, you have to yeah. look across all the different elements of the business. Yeah, you have to understand the sales and the marketing and the supply chain and how that impacts the P&L. Yeah. You know, is there enough cash available? How do you manage resources? How do you lead your team? Yeah. All of that stuff. So that set me up really well because, because in 2009, um, I left um, along... Um, with another chap called Dan Trimpton, and we founded Peppersmith. Okay. And, and Peppersmith, uh, for those of you who haven't come across the brand, is a sort of good-for-you confectionery company, yeah. which is a bit of an oxymoron. <laughs> it is. Uh, sort of health and confectionery don't tend to go together. But the reason we got to um, Peppersmith and confectionery is because at Innocent, we're in this um, you know, constant world of you know, a brand that is natural, it's sustainable, it's good for you, and uh, you know, and it has a really powerful brand to sort of communicate those stories. Yeah. As, and, you know, and those changes, you know, so Innocent sort of led the way along with a few other brands, but you could just see those themes running across all food and drink, yeah. all the different categories, yeah. whether it's bread or crisps or milk or cereals, it was all changing in that direction. And then you know, our insight was confectionery was still the old, it was still run as it was 50 years ago. Sugary, yeah, Sugar, bad for you, well, sort of, kind of like preservatives, all of that kind of stuff. It's sort of high volume, low quality yeah. crap. That's not doing anyone any good. So we saw this opportunity. Like, look, before these trends are, you know, shaking up every other category, why should confectionery be any different? Okay. So our big break, and really the reason we started, is we found all even, you know, this was 2009. So well, it was 13 years ago. We found a plastic-free chewing gum. Okay. Which is a thing now. It wasn't then, <laughs> and um, and the reason we sort of looked at plastic free is because we just want it to be more natural. Yeah. Um. You know, chewing gum has got loads of weird chemicals in, and we saw the opportunity to have something that was just a bit more pure. And also, we didn't use sugar. We used this ingredient called xylitol, which is a natural sweetener, and it's got this amazing property where it's really good for your teeth. Okay. So it hasn't got the downsides of sugar, and it does your teeth really good. So all of a sudden, we had this natural product yeah. that was really good for you. Boom. So we've got we've got a starting point. So that's where we launched the, the Peppersmith brand with this you know, with this chewing gum product in two thousand and nine. And over the years we sort of grew that business. Stay, stayed in confectionery, but we had a mince range and a kids range and a okay. sweets range and did different things and uh, you know, sort of we grew that business over an eight year period and we got to a bit of an inflection point around twenty sixteen. Okay. Brexit happened. Yes. And we were we yep. were importing a lot of the products, so our, our yeah our margins got absolutely yeah. screwed, and you know we went from a profitable business to a loss making business overnight, right. pretty much. So that was sort of five six years into five, the journey. Five six years into the journey, and at that point we'd also lost. We you know we had a great growth story, and then we lost a bit of momentum. Yeah. We were in. I guess we got into quite a few of the supermarkets. We we're in Sainsbury's and Waitrose. Uh, we had Boots and WH Smiths, and I think Morrison's might have just been about to start. So quite okay. successful, but at the same time, we'd also plateaued a little bit. Yeah. So we got sort of hit a ceiling, and then so we'd hit a ceiling, so lost a bit of momentum, and then Brexit happened. Yeah. I was like, oh, you know, so what money, you know, the, the business was set up to be profitable for the size it was, yeah. and then it wasn't. So it's like, ooh. So I spent probably two years fixing that. And at the same time as well, my co-founder, Dan, had also sort of stepped away from the business. Okay. He had gone back to Ireland with his wife. His wife was Irish. And the reason that happened is really because, yeah, you know, we were an SME, we were a small business, yeah. and we had two sort of... 30, 40 year olds running, the, you know, senior, yeah. senior people running the business. And it didn't need two of you. It didn't need two of us, nor could it support two of us. Because we had the choice. It's like, yeah. you know, do we pay ourselves, you know, a decent salary to, you know, pay the mortgage and support the family? Or actually could pay one of us and take that the rest of that cash and put it into marketing? Yeah. So we, we got to the point where Dan said, actually, I want to go back to Ireland anyway. So can I do that? I was like, yeah, let's, how okay. Did, how did that 
feel? Because you know that, that you know you start a business together, you founded it together. Obviously, you must have got on well when you were innocence together. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you hit a difficult point in the business journey, and you're left holding the reins. Yeah, and it, and it, it wasn't quite like that because it wasn't an ultimatum. It was like I'm off, so you you deal with it. It's your it, problem, it was like yeah. you know we we went it together. We decided about six or eight months or a year before. It's actually probably doesn't need both of us. How do yeah, we do which this? Which one of us is it going to yeah, be? Yeah, or, or do we both sort of you know step back a bit and you know how do we how do we yeah. do this? And it was only when um, Dan's wife got pregnant said like we want to go okay, back to right. Ireland. So, Family, so Ireland, it's like yeah. and it was like okay, so the you know the parts of the jigsaw started to come together. So okay. uh, so Dan left and then the brexit happened and then i had to spend um a year or so um just restructuring the business you know all those horrible things you have to do like put yeah. up prices and maybe restructure the team and think about you know how we operate um that that was quite tough but then but came out the other side you know got back into yeah. profitability you know we can survive but also the realization is if we were going to make any real a real impact as a brand on the market on the category we're in we're going to have to have some more funding. Okay. You know, we're up against, you yeah. know, our competitors were Nestle and had Mars. and basically been self-funded to that point? We or... had angel investors. So okay. We, we had some investment, but it was, you know, in terms of confectionery, and even in terms of most food and drink brands, it was, you know, pittance. Yeah. It was enough to, you know, it was, it, we did the seed. bootstrap We did We did the seed round. Okay. But we didn't do any more than that. So wow, um, you've got a long way then on yeah, we seed did, funding. We did get a long way on seed funding, um, but then we got to the point where you know, so actually, we're going to need to raise more money. And it was during that process where um, I guess you know raising money was possible, but there was yeah. lots of conditions on it. And the biggest one for me was, oh, Mike, yep, this is your thing. I'm going to give you some money, but you're going to be in it for the next seven or eight years, and the next part yeah. of the journey. And I was. After doing sort of eight years at Innocent and eight years at Peppersmith, I was like, mm, not sure I've got the appetite for that, okay. especially because there's an uncertain future as yes. well. And then um, during that process, one of the potential investors said, actually, we don't want to invest, but we're looking to acquire brands. Okay. So if you're open to that discussion, um, we can talk about you know um, selling the brand. And it wasn't something that we'd originally planned, but again, it was just seemed to be the right time. It's like, you know, they were willing to take the brand on. They said they were going to put lots of money into it and okay. grow it and stuff. I thought, well, that's quite exciting. That's a yeah. good legacy, isn't that? And also, it gave me the opportunity to step away and do something else. Yeah. Um, so after lots of discussions, you know, there was, you know, going through all the permutations and the options, we decided it was the best thing to do. And one of the things it also enabled us to do was move. So we moved from Southwest London down to down to Paul, down to the coast. Down to the so, and, south for, coast. and for me, it was the next step. I, I do see sort of business cycles as like sort of seven yeah. years. And you, you know, when you get to the end of that seven, it's like, a, you know, the tour yeah. of duty. When you get to the end of that seven years, decide, are you going to do another seven years? Yeah. Or are you going to do something else? Uh, and just to continue without a plan didn't seem that appetizing. So, yeah, I sold the business and, and moved down to Paul. Wow. And I suppose that's a great, but just what you're saying is a, a great thing about the serendipity of business, isn't it? It's sometimes you go on a journey and you've got to keep your eyes wide open and have a cup of coffee and have a chat with anybody. And, and then life takes you somewhere you didn't expect, but it can be a great place all the same. And yeah. sometimes you you try and plan things to the nth degree. And that's, you know, and if you get that fixed mindset, that never happens and you become disappointed. That's it. I mean, I always, you know, people ask you, like, when you set up a business, like, what's your end game? Yeah. You know, do you want to exit? You know, what was it all about? I say, yeah. You know, my, my view on it is that if you're successful, you've got options. Yeah. Yeah, there's loads of different choices. And yeah, yeah. and even things, when things are going badly, it's like, oh, I, I've only got one choice. That's probably not true. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it is all about options. And that's why I like entrepreneurism. You know, yeah. you sort of, you create things and see where it takes you. Yeah. And what have they done with the Peppersmith brand since? How's so, the journey gone? You are, I mean, since I left... Did one, you stay at all? Or? I stayed for a year. Okay. And, that, and that's a discussion maybe for another time about, <laughs> you know, when you leave a business in terms of if they want you to stay or not. Yeah. And it always it amazes me how lots of acquirers want the founders, founder or founders to stay 
even though when there's no guarantee that relationship's going to be no. be good or bad. We just don't know. Um, so I, you know, I said it's I always challenging one way or another. My view on it was like, I'll give you a year, and yeah. if we've got a great relationship and it's the right thing for both of us, yeah. let's continue. Why yeah. not? Um, but if if it's not, let's make sure we've both got the opportunity to yeah. have a new plan. And so I got to the twelve months. It was it was just the right thing. I mean, the business was uh, I was taking a slightly different direction. So did you expect of a new owner? Yeah, that's you know that's that's what you do. That's what they do. That's what and it's their right to do that. Having bought it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And if you as a founder, if you expect you know a different story, expect things to be done in your own yeah. way, then you should definitely not have sold. But anyway, yeah. Um, so yeah, I stayed for a year, and the, the brand's doing okay. I mean, the uh, the the pandemic really hit it. I mean, we'll talk a bit in a minute about direct to consumer. I guess you know direct to consumer was a big part of the pandemic. Yeah. for most brands you know buying stuff off the internet you know the still Peppersmith did a lot of direct to consumer but its core market was still sort of impulse sales we, just, at, at the till at the till sales yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you know, during that first wow, six yeah. months or a year, it really got hit hard. Um, so I think it's still recovering out of that, but it's still, you know, you can still find it in uh, in Sainsbury's and Waitrose, etc., yeah. etc. Uh, and I and I see some of the branded stuff that's going on. It's always quite interesting to see, yeah. uh, you know, what someone else is doing with it. But yeah, so I hope it'll be around for a long time. Yeah, good, good, good. Last question on your own journey before we get into some of the sort of direct consumer stuff is: looking back now, is there anything you'd do differently? And what is the, there's probably lots of things, but what's the one key thing you might have done differently on your journey with Peppersmith? Ah, oh, you know, I don't think, I think you can only have regrets if you think you made a bad decision at yeah. the time. You know, in hindsight, yeah. you, you think, oh, maybe I can, you know. Yeah, I, I think hindsight you know, only kicks you in the teeth, but hindsight's good, isn't it? I don't think you can live with regrets in any way, shape or form because you make decisions at the moment for the best intentions. But so with hindsight, is there anything you think yeah, you might have done Yeah, no, I think, you know, maybe I would have done things a little bit differently with funding, maybe just try, try to raise some more money. At an earlier stage. At an earlier stage, okay. and that maybe would have given us a bit more momentum. Um, I certainly, uh, we struggled as a brand in the very early days that we only had one product. It was a great product, and lots of people bought it, but it was only one one product yeah so that's always going to limit your ability to scale yeah so i think you know maybe we would have done something different there um that's it but you know i'm I'm really proud of what we did i mean we did a lot with as you said with not a lot yeah and we've still got a brand that you know lots of people like and still great products it's still around and you know i went on my journey you know i learned a lot at innocent i learned even more yeah doing it it for myself (laughs) at peppersmith so yeah it's great so yeah i have Maybe there was one or two small things we did differently, but overall there was no no real howlers. No, nothing. And something definitely might to be uh, proud of. So, but you are now. You know, you mentioned it. You're, you're writing a book. It launches, I think, in May. Direct to consumer playbook. It's called, isn't it? Yes. So, so tell us a bit about the book. Yeah, the book. The book's out, and you know, it's we're start, we're recording this at the start of April. So yeah. I've got about four weeks to go. Yeah, getting exciting. So the the book was it came out of what we were doing at Peppersmith. So at Peppersmith, we um, our core customers, and this is where the brand was really set up for was the like mm. the supermarkets, the health food shops, the coffee shops, the convenience stores. You know, you buy stuff in bricks and mortar. Yeah. Um, but we always did right from the very beginning. We did some. We had our own little web shop. Okay. And the reason that at the beginning we had our own little web shop is because we wanted to give anyone who's interested access to the brand. Yeah. You know, building distribution in retail takes a long, long, long time. Um, but, people, you know, there are people out there who hear about you and want to buy the products. So it's like, okay, let's make sure it's available. And like, and we used to do it once a week. We used to have a pack up on a Friday and take the stuff down to the post yeah. office. <laughs> yeah, all, all very, very homespun. Uh, but it worked. But, you know, over the years, we started just doing more and more. I mean, yeah. yes, I guess e-commerce, direct-to-consumer picked up a bit more pace. And um, we were one of the first products launched on Amazon when they started selling food. Okay. And we also, you know, we did quite well out of Amazon. So it started becoming a bigger and bigger thing for our business. And also... At the same time, dealing with the retailers just got harder and harder. Yeah. I mean, this is no surprise to anyone, but retailers are not what they were 20 years ago because they're not making the same money that they, no. they were. So, you know, e, you know, and e-commerce is a big part of that. So, you know, the amount of money that the likes of Sainsbury's and Tesco can make, you know, is very different nowadays. And what that means, you know, as a brand owner is that you just get less opportunities. Yeah. They have smaller teams. They're more risk averse. Um, it's just harder to get brands onto shelf. Yeah. And so, you know, while this change was happening, we were finding it harder and harder to deal. Even the customers that we're with, you know, we'd been with Sainsbury's since, you know, 2011, but we couldn't even get a meeting with them, even yeah. though we were a, 
yeah, you know, we're a supplier. Brand yeah, so, supplier so, 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 so yeah. What, what, what do we do? You know, we want to do some more. I would get the kidney at that meeting. So that was hugely frustrating. So because you had this barrier between you and the consumer, yeah. but whereas what you know, we saw you know, we have direct to consumer, we don't have to worry about retailers, yeah. we can just do what we want when we want. And uh, you know, and so, our margin and all of that. Well, we'll come back to margin. Okay, uh, well, we're ma- right. ma- 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 that. Ma- margins. Uh, yeah, it's D to C doesn't always mean big margins. Yeah. Um, so, but it was just an opportunity to serve more customers and in, in the way that we wanted to. So, I got really quite excited and quite into it. And, and also down the road from us, there was Grays. Okay. Um, you know, Grays who did the snack boxes originally yeah. through the post and now are huge in supermarkets as well, which were, which is an interesting one. Um, and I just saw what they were doing. I was like. They're just doing so much better than us by doing things differently. I want to do what <laughs> they're do doing. Learn from them. Yeah, learn from them. So I wanted to just do more and more D to C, and we did. And we we did. We built up about between twenty five and percent and thirty odd percent of our business was a from high internet sales. High proportion of sales from confection from a product that you normally buy one little box of, yeah. a little little pack of at a time. So we were selling cases. And the reason we could do that as a brand is because of these functional health benefits. Yeah. So if you really understood it, if you know one of our core consumers, it's like, oh actually I want this on a daily basis. Yeah. So I'm prepared to buy in bulk. Yeah. And that's why I wouldn't be able to source it and know I've got it and yeah. That and that's why it worked. But the the thing I, I realised at the time, this was sort of, you know, 2014, 2015, I was like, right, strategically, let's do more direct-to-consumer. Not quite sure how to do it. And I started talking amongst my peer group, to all the other brand owners and founders yeah. that I knew who in, in food and drink. I said, okay, are you doing any D2C? Some were, some, some, some were not. And the ones that were, it's like, well, what are you doing? What are you putting your money into? How do you do it? You know, what's yeah. the important thing to do? And they had a few ideas and I had, you know, we, we shared a lot of good ideas at the time. But it was just very apparent to me that we were all learning on the job. Yeah, it was, the, it was such a new thing, really, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, but there was such a new thing. And I, you know, when I want to learn things, I you know I like to I like to pick up a book, and for years it's like I want to buy the book that tells brands how to do D to C, and this book just didn't exist. All the time I needed it, it didn't <laughs> exist. And then um, when I sold Peppersmith, it still didn't exist. Yeah. And then I because I sold Peppersmith and moved away, it's like well I've actually got some time. And so it's like look, no one's written this book. I really think it's an important book to write because lots of people need it. Absolutely, yeah. no one else is going to write it. Best, I guess you know that's my responsibility. <laughs> this is me now. now; it's on my shoulders. Yeah, and that's that, and, that, and that's how I felt. And you know, and some of my motivation for writing this book, apart from you know, I thought it'd be a fun adventure to write a book, something yeah. new to do. Um, it's because I think it's really needed, and no, yeah. no one's done it. So what I've done over the last two years, I've just interviewed sort of the founders of the best DTC brands that I know, okay. um, the likes of Bloom and Wild and Grays and Towels and Huel and All Plants, and got um, managed to interview one of the. Um, founders of Casper over in the States. Okay. Um, so all these you know, fantastic brands who've done a great yeah. job on D2C. What I did, I you know, I did what you just did for the last 20 minutes, which is to find out the backstory. Yeah. Yeah, which is the interesting bit. And then but also from that in terms of, you know, how is this brand coming to be and why did you do what you did out of that, pick out the things that um, sort of led them to success. Because you know those strategic choices, yeah. whether you know what technology platform they, they invested yeah. in how how big a customer service team you know did they outsource it was it in-house okay you know how the, how they manage their pricing and I is there that. some co- common themes that come through from those um brands that you've talked to yeah lots of common themes i mean and and is it in the, the other thing i found even while i was writing the book how much the direct consumer landscape was changing the rules were changing yeah, okay. even as i was writing this thing <laughs> which especially and during the pandemic um but yeah but the commonalities between them all i mean first of all they've all got good products yeah the products have to solve a problem yeah. you know you've got to, you know they've got to stand out i suppose in terms of their peer group as well in terms of you know, whatever sector they're in. It's got to do a job better yeah. than what else is available. Yeah. Uh, and they also, also got great brands in terms of communicating okay. why, you know, why this product is better. Okay. And also really importantly, what the brand stands for. Yes. As a brand, this is what we stand for. This is what we believe in. And what direct consumer enables you to do is connect with like-minded individuals. Okay. It's like, yeah, you know, I believe in protecting the environment or yeah. running really fast or, yeah. you know, um, having nice things every Tuesday, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, you, you can just find those people and connect to them. So they do that that really well. But also, you know, incredibly smart, 
um, ambitious and hardworking founders who just run really good businesses. Yeah. They just, they, again, all the things that I learned about, you know, in terms of, you know, the things you consider in founding, you know, whether it's your, your cost of goods or your cost of people, your cost of infrastructure, how you get the word out, marketing, yeah. how, you know, how you, how you sell and what the prices are, all that stuff. Yeah. They do it all. And they do, and the ones you know have successful businesses do it all well. I mean, they they're all sort of big businesses, not the only people yeah. in the business. But you just get a founder who. I was going to say, it. do you think one of the common things is they've got a passionate founder that drives that brand in the early years, even if over, over time their their influence steps down. Yeah, and fa- and all that just about all the brands that I, I I interviewed found the founders want to solve a problem. Yeah, they're not in it to make money. No. Uh, yeah, a lot of them have. They've done really well. Yeah. As a consequence of as a consequence, yeah, you know that's the uh, yeah, the the side effect of you know s- solving a problem for a lot of people really well. Yeah, uh, and that's what they do. That and that's what's being an entrepreneur is about. Yeah. it's not about you know having your own business and getting rich. It's about you know finding new ways to do things. Yeah. And having a passion for what you do. And you have to have a passion. And the reason you have to have a passion for it is because it's bloody hard. It's tough. Yeah. <laughs> Focus, passion and belief will get you there, won't it? But there'll be some tough times along the way. And when you look at this sort of this D2C landscape now, um, you can look at some of the pricing strategies, can't you? Because some of them are subscription-based. Some of them are just relying on ad hoc returning customer base. Some of them are trying to attract new customers all the time. Have you got a kind of preference if you're starting a D2C brand on kind of the pricing model or the business model? Oh, look, if you can do subscription, that's great because yeah. you've got customers are locked in and coming back again and again and again. The problem with subscription is that not all products or even hardly any products yeah. and that you know you want on a regular time basis. I mean, you get brands like... Um, uh, into like who gives a crap uh, who like yeah. toilet rolls and that sort of regular subscription but all of them have you know had the magic button where you can pause or yeah. reschedule because you just don't know what you want so there's only a few products where subscription really works so the rest of them is like I'm going to serve a customer but when they want it because this is what you, you know yeah. serving customers about getting a product to them in the most efficient easy way yes and sometimes subscription really works well other times it's like you know I don't want a subscription for that. And end up you actually resenting the brand. It's like, yeah. I've wasted money. I've part of my new roles Yeah, <laughs> I've wasted money on product that I don't need right now. Yeah. Therefore, I've lost a bit of love yeah. and a bit of trust in you. So, uh, okay, so yeah, I, you know, interesting that, way of putting it. Yeah, so that, you know, that's actually, that's really bad for, for, for yeah, loyalty right. and trust. So um, I think it depends on the price. So, subscription is great if there's a real need for it. Yeah. Um, if not, you know, pricing is important. And it, comes back to what we were saying before about margin. So everyone has this belief that margin is it's, it's win-win. Cut out the middleman, cut out the retailer, yeah. and then you know it's you know you're going to make more money, and yeah. the consumer is going to pay less. And isn't that great? It actually really, really works that way because you know it takes a lot of resources to actually get. Um, a product from one brand to one person. If you think about that retail model, you deliver one product to one entity and they deliver it to lots and lots of different people. That's the efficiency. But now you're saying it's it's actually one-to-one and you have to pay for to get the product from A to B. And it's not only like transport, it's the packing it up and it's the labeling and dealing with the orders and all all of this stuff. Returns and And returns, yeah, and mistakes and all all of it. And it it just takes a lot of energy, effort, money. Uh, And and that means that, you know, that can really eat your margin. And the the other thing as well is is that if you've got a really efficient margin model um, where you can actually, you can price lower because you're D2C, you're not going to be the only one doing that for long. And this is what happened to Casper in the States. You know, they had this fantastic business with brilliant product, great branding, really good attitude to customer service. And in other companies thought, oh, that's good. Why don't we start doing that? And they were just all of a sudden within a year, they were overrun by capacitors. Yeah. It doesn't, yeah, those barriers to entry are quite small at times, aren't they? Depending on your product and yeah. D to C, because you're not having to get into the retailer and be stocked, means that actually the barriers to entry are even smaller. Aren't they? Which is fantastic, you know, for me as like yeah. a, a brand as someone as an who entrepreneur, wants, hey, what's a great to do yeah, things, to yeah. have like yeah, and before you know you had the um, the resellers were really the gatekeeper. Yeah, yeah, you know, they decide what's put on the shelf or not, and then what gets in the consumer's hands. With D 2 C, you remove that barrier. However, it means that you've got to do so much more in terms of you know having a great products and also making sure that you can serve the customer as well. Because get customer, you have to build the trust. Yeah, you know, if you're in the supermarket 
yourselves, you know there's been a lot of legwork already done for you in terms of, you know, it's obviously this is made to a good standard. You know, it's got a brand I can trust. I know if I have a problem with it, I can go back to the retailer or the brand. You know, you're sort yeah. of well looked after. But when you go on, on the internet, it's like, oh, that yeah. looks good, but I'm not so sure. Yeah, yeah. we've all had those 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 moments of, yeah, well, I want to buy this, but do I feel confident enough? And this is what Amazon did really well. I mean, Amazon stock a lot of items. Obviously, they clearly had some quality control there, but it's maybe not as good as you, you want it to be. Maybe, maybe yeah. not as rigorous. But what they do do, Amazon, if you have a problem, as a consumer, they're, they're going to take care of it yeah. for you. So we've talked a little bit about the fact that Peppersmith had, you know, had mixed routes to market. So if you were advising a sort of startup brand at the moment that was looking to go purely D to C. At what point would you might think actually you need some other sort of market strategies? You might need to be going retail or wholesale. I mean, are you a believer purely now in D to C or would you say a blended approach is better? Uh, I think a blended approach is probably a necessity. Okay. And this is a firm view. (laughs) And there's there's lots of different reasons for that. I mean, first and foremost, it's about the ability to scale. D to C is great, but um, what happens, especially in the UK, is that UK brands see what's going on in the States, okay. and they think, oh, that's a good idea. They're doing well. Why don't I do what they're doing in the UK? And so they sort of build the brand. You know, the product can be as good, but what's not the same is the size of the market. Yeah. And, and so you know, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, you know, we've, we've hit a bit of a ceiling that maybe half a million sales or a million quid, which sounds a lot of money. But if you're trying to support a team to do all the things you need to do to run your business, it's actually not big enough. Yeah. So it's like, oh, you know, we've got a problem here. We can't support the business by having a you know, pure play D2C model. So then it's like, oh, can we do retail? The problem or the challenge is, you know, a lot of D2C brands are set up around being D2C. Yeah. And that doesn't always translate into what a retailer wants yeah. or expects. So you have to see, you know, can you get over that hurdle? Um, and then, you know, and what often happens is even though you built a bit of a reputation D to C, if you try and do it too early, you know, the retailer is even not going to take you seriously or put you on shelf. Yeah. Or in fact, you're not ready for, for retail. Yeah. There's a great story in the book, a company called Sugru, who make um, this fantastic um, sort of mold... Um, it's like this it's it's moldable plastic and you fix things with it it's, it's, it's you know look it up it, it is it's a brilliant material you, you know you use it at home when something's broken yeah and um they did really well d2c really quickly built up a great community they were and then they were asked by b&q can we put you on shelf and they were like oh yeah that sounds like a good idea let's yeah. go into retail um and they raised some more money to that and they had some more debt and they did some different things but the ultimately they weren't ready to go into retail because it's a different way of operating. Yeah. And also the the, the B&Q consumer base weren't ready for them. Okay. So it just didn't work. So they ended up, you know, spending a lot of money and time on something that didn't okay. didn't work out and it really hurt the business. There was a happy ending, but, you know, I'll let you read the book for that. Yeah, cool. Definitely going to be buying a copy of the book. Um, and we talked about the pandemic, didn't we? And we, I suppose you could then say, for a better word, you know, the rules. So... How do you think the pandemic has changed the rules relating to D to C? I mean, I think it's really just made everyone. If you're a consumer, you know that you can buy products online. Yeah. You know, if you need something, you can get online and buy it, and it can be delivered to your door. Maybe even the next day. That's pretty good. Yeah. So I think you know a lot of consumers who maybe weren't so sure it just wasn't part of their behaviour have now switched into. I can buy things online. So I think okay. that's important for D2C. And a lot of brands, you know, the ones that, the ones what did well during the pandemic, the ones who had, were able to serve D2C. So any brand that were already set up to do D2C, yeah. it was easy. We can we know how to do this. We'll just do more of it. Um, but what you had, you had an awful lot of brands scrambling yeah. to try and set up. Find a, a Shopify account and set it up. Whether it's a website or, you know, how yeah. do we, you know, the warehouse, how do we label this, you know, do we, who delivers it, all of the stuff. They were yeah. like, oh, they were way behind. And some of them called up and did it well. Others are still not doing it so well. But I think the pandemic has been really important for D2C in terms of it is now a viable way of serving your customers for okay. most categories and brands. Um, but what has obviously changed, and this is it always surprised me, you know, where hopefully things are going back to more normal. I mean, what is the new normal? We'll see how it all pans out. But people are now going going back to the shops they're out and about. 
which means that you know D to C is a choice, not a necessity. Yes. So brands that are thinking, oh, D to C is the future. This is the way we're going to sell all our products. Yeah. That's not true. Okay. So it's about you know where is that balance? Where's but, that blend again, and where's that mix, and where yeah. do you need to put your resource? I suppose. But you know, I think you know the you know the pandemic really moved on D to C, and most brands. My view is that um, even though not all products are suited for D to C, food and drinks a classic one. Yeah. Yeah. Most people were still going to buy um, the vast vast majority of um, sort of food and drink from supermarket outlets. It, you know, it could be digital like Ocado or you know in yeah. you know, that's just the way the the way it is. Um, however, you know that saying, I think all brands should have an element of D to C, even because it's a really important sales channel yeah. for them. But even if it's not that, what it does allow you to do is connect directly to your your so it's consumers. Brand development. So it's brand development, and your and your consumers, you connect directly to the ones who are going to give you most love and loyalty. Yeah. They they're your super fans, but also what they tell you is you know what they want from you. What do you need to change? Are your products up to scratch? Yeah. You know, is, is your packaging doing a job? You know, what can you do do more of? Oh, can you do? We really like this. Can you do more of that? Yeah. Um, you know, you get to find that out instantly. I mean, I had a great quote from um, Hugh Thomas, who's the CEO of Ugly Drinks, and he was saying, you know, they they sell canned drinks D to C and in the supermarkets, and, and in fact, ninety percent of the sales are still in the supermarkets, mainly in the US. Okay. And he and he said to me, we still do D to C because not only is it a great way of connecting with customers, we just learn so much. He said we can learn more in a week D to C than we could in a year in the shops, just okay. because the feedback, you know, is that much yeah. more rapid. So, yeah, it's there, and you are talking directly with your customers. Where do you think it's going to go? If you had your crystal ball, is there a place where you think it, you know, it's going to go, Mike? Um, I mean, D to C. I mean, D to C is here to stay. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think people, you know, it will change, and uh, hopefully brands will get better at it. The rules change. I mean, what's happened with with D to C over the last ten years is because it's got these low barriers of entry. There's just more competition. Mm. So it's really, really hard to stand out as a brand. And you have to do, you know, from a marketing perspective, you have to do more and more and more to, yeah. you know, get people to pay you attention. Um, and also, because of this competition, what's happened, you know, back in the early days, the way that you did D2C is that you put ads on social media, probably on Facebook. Yeah. yeah. And if the cost of that ad was less than the profit you would make from the customer that you got from that ad, yeah. You just spend as much as you possibly could on those yeah. ads, yeah. and that's that, that was just the rules. It's like you know, I, I, um, basic it was, economics, I suppose. Oh, I was at Oliver Bridge and Cornerstone. He said to me back in the day, it was like it was like free money. Okay. He said, he said, I wanted to mortgage my house and all that, <laughs> remortgage my house to put all the money back into this because it was just like yeah. you know, if you put one in, you got two out. That was a great <laughs> machine, but it didn't last. And what happened was, as there was more and more competition yeah. from new challenger brands, but also from the big old-fashioned brands who never used to do this sort of stuff, thinking, oh, people don't watch TV anymore. We need to be on <laughs> Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. They started putting their dollars and pounds into into these accounts. And also, at the same time, you know, Facebook or Meta, or the, yeah. you know, as they're called now, they thought, ah, oh, we've got something that's really valuable. We can charge a bit more for this. Yeah. And to put all those things together and over time, and it means the cost now of buying an advert on those platforms is yeah. so expensive and it, what it means for brands is actually you can't just buy those customers and make a profit well not many brands anyway via that mechanism so you have to do so much more to build brands yeah. and what will happen as well is because you know it's all about brand building getting out there and showing your product to people yeah. you probably have to do more in, in real life as well yeah. away from digital and whether that's events or pop-ups or even you know getting into retailers yes yeah you, know, you you know brands yes. are going to have to do more of that because um you know d2c is just another channel yeah yeah and it's a new channel a relatively new channel for most businesses where if we go back 10 years, there was niche businesses operating D2C very well. Niche businesses operated D2C very well and became huge businesses yeah. very quickly. Yeah. Um, but now, yeah, it's... Um, and the other thing with D2C, with all the competition, you need a lot of skill to get it right. Yeah. There are a lot of elements to think about. Wow. So you, so you would also say to a startup in that D2C world, you need investment because you need the expertise and brands on board? Really, yeah. I mean, the investment is about marketing. Yeah, yeah. To actually be able to make an impact. I mean, but you you will find some products who won't need that because what they've got, if they can 
build make a product no one else is and serve a particular niche yeah. and they can find that niche via the internet um yeah they they don't need to spend lots of money in in again in the book there's a um a company called hyatt denim who make really high quality jeans out okay. in wales yeah great story they don't spend that much money on advertising at all because what they do they spend such a long time just being masters of what they do see if you've heard of jeans yeah you're going to go to them and they're going to find you because you're interested in the same thing as you are um they do this fantastic newsletter where they never talk about jeans okay and it's all about you know connecting the spirit of what they do with what who yeah. you are, and they will find ways to find you, and you will find ways to find them. Yeah, and, and then that, you connect, and, and, and then, then you, you can and you connect, and that is so so different from seeing an ad on Facebook saying thirty percent off. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And but around that, do you think there's a lot talked about these days, isn't there, about a brand with purpose and a brand for good and I suppose the other way is, you know, brands that are disruptors, disruptors into the market. Do you think you have to have one of those three things to sort of succeed? I think you have to have disruption. Okay. I mean, this is, this is about entrepreneurialism, right? Yes. Yeah. If you're an entrepreneur, you've got to do something different. Yeah. If you're if you're not disrupting, you're doing the same. <laughs> and if you're doing the same, what's the point? Yeah. You know, you you you're into a mass market at that point. You, you might fail by doing something different because what you're doing is actually not wanted, or yeah. you know, not, you don't have, there's not any value in it. Um, but you're going to fail if you do the alternative as well, which is doing the same with everyone else because there's more there's more better funded, more capable people already doing that. Yeah. So that's not you. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to disrupt. Yeah. Uh, and that's great. Yeah, that's just what I love about you know entrepreneurialism. It's always a new new solutions. Uh, um, so yes, but in terms of having a purpose, yes, you have to have a purpose. What that purpose is, I mean, that's down to you. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's like the old school. Like, oh, I'm going to make as much money as possible. When yeah. <laughs> um, that's okay. But what you will find is actually for most consumers, because you know, especially D 2 C, you buy more into the brand. Yeah, you want to connect with that yeah, brand. So, yeah, what, what is this brand then, into? And if yeah. you see, actually, they're a really selfish brand. Yeah. You know, they're not doing a lot for me. You know, people are more attracted to brands so that actually who care more. Yeah. And you know what? And what D two C does, it just opens up that possibility. I mean, D two C brands are not the first people who are actually you know yeah. are brands with purpose. And you look at you know Innocent, yeah. a great one. They've you know been doing it for a long time. Before them, Body Shop. Yes. And then Patagonia. These were brands that all did you know a really good job before D two C was yeah. a thing in terms of having a brand with purpose that gave more than just making profits from um, whatever they sold. But what D two C has done is a couple of things. It makes it easy for brands to do things differently so it's like, actually i'm a business and i stand for something new yeah they can ask the world yeah you know do you see value in that and the great yeah, do you thing, see the world like me you see yeah. the world like me and the great thing is a lot of people do um so they have the opportunity to try these things I mean, a good example is who gives a crap the toilet roll company yeah. so they're in the book and their story was so back in 2011 i think yeah they yeah, um, Simon, the, the the Australian founder, he had this idea. So like, I'm going to make toilet roll, and I'm going to take half the profits of this toilet roll company to give back to water and sanitation product yeah. um, projects. Yeah, really good idea. Absolutely. So um, he had this idea, this purpose. He came up with this brand, found the manufacturer, so I can make toilet roll, and this is what my business is going to do. He took his brand and product to the supermarkets in Australia and said, look, this is what I'm going to do. Will you put me on shelf? And the supermarkets, you know, when he finally got the meeting with the buyer, they faffed around. And ultimately, I think they said, we really like your idea, but it's too risky. Oh. We're not sure it's going to sell. So it's like, hmm. I've got a problem here. But at the same time, a bit like with Peppersmith, they'd already started selling things on the internet. Yeah. And they just noticed that actually, we're finding it really hard to get into retailers. D2C is going really well. Right. Why don't we just do D2C? And that's and they've and they've built their business from that. Uh, and, and it's great. So without D2C, just um, I guess D2C gives you more opportunities. Yeah, but what will come out of D2C, the best ideas, the best products and the best businesses were, are still gonna win out. Just because you're on D2C doesn't mean you're gonna you're, you're gonna do well. Definitely. So Mike, you're you sort of exited Peppersmith now with all of that experience. You're clearly still very entrepreneurial. Um, you have written a book, which launches in May. What's next for Mike? 
Yeah, so, I mean, I've, I've been trying to work this out for a little <laughs> while. I mean, after Peppersmith, I needed a bit of a, not not a break, I needed a change. Yeah. And the, so the, sort of the last two or three years, I've been, as well as been writing the book, I also consult for other sort of startups, challenger brands, maybe okay. in the consumer goods space, but, you know, yeah. if anyone needs any help, you know, I'm, uh, I, yeah, I can I can certainly ha- have a look and see if I can help you. Um, so I've been doing a lot of that, and that's been fun for me, getting involved with lots of different businesses. Um, and then we've got, we've had the book. And now the sort of the book, it feels like, the book's coming to an end but it's yeah. not it's just about to come out so uh, <laughs> you're gonna have to put some marketing into yeah so there, there's still be a, there's a bit of work to be done around yeah just sharing what, <laughs> what you know what i've been busy with so be, be the book but then after that yeah i am looking at different ideas okay um probably with a d2c element yeah uh you know, I, you know i've learned quite a lot so yeah, <laughs> use that knowledge i could <laughs> use that knowledge but yeah it's just just trying to work out yeah what is the next thing i mean i love building businesses and bringing out products so yeah i think i've got a bit more yeah, of that in me yeah i can so, see that this so, is the first time we've met but i can see that energy and that passion uh, for product and d2c just oozing out of you mike so yeah so what watch this space watch this like. space brilliant so the book is called direct to consumer playbook um where can people get a copy of the book in may and where can they connect with you mike if they want to learn more about you and your story and your journey yeah, so the Directing Consumer Playbooks available in all good bookshops yeah. um, from May, but it's all you can also pre-order it now. So if you go into Amazon or any, you know, the, um, Waterstones or Foils or whatever, they've all uh, bookshop.org. Okay. I, should, I could shout, you know, they they support independent booksellers, so it's a great way to uh, to buy the book. So just search the uh, Directing Consumer Playbook, and you'll find it, and you can order it. Um, and uh, we'll see how it goes. So it launches in a month, and then. Um, Aside from that, I you know I love connecting with people. So I've got our consultancy website is www.stevens.earth. Dot earth. Dot, dot earth. Yeah. So okay. that's also so my wife, who's a sustainability consultant. Um, she's on there as well. So okay. between us, I generally look after sort of business and scaling, and she looks after sustainability. So we have this oh, consultancy. That's a good combination. Yeah. And, yeah, it, it, it works well. And then um, you can also find me on Twitter, Open Mike Stevens, and the normal channel, LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. L- look me up. Yes, it shouldn't be that hard to find me. Brilliant. Mike, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've learned lots today in that kind of three quarters of an hour we've been talking. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading the book. And it's been great to have you as a guest on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My hope with every episode is that you've learned something new or heard something that challenged your way of thinking and further motivated you on your path towards becoming a more knowledgeable, informed and inspired individual and business leader. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us by rating, reviewing and subscribing. We really value your feedback and would love to have you along for future episodes. And please don't forget to learn more about Evolve by going to evolvemembers.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week.